This is the Oxford Comment. I'm Lauren and with me here as always is Michelle. We have an episode we think you'll very much enjoy. It's all about words. Okay, Lauren, I'm going to stop you right there. Yes, this episode is about words, but your British accent is totally fake. You went to the UK in November and you were there for a week. It had a deep, lasting impact on my life. And I'm not faking the accent. It just happened while I was over there. <laughs> when Lauren went to the UK back in November, she got to tour the OED archive, and she is going to share it with all of us today. But first, Michelle goes gaga over Caleb Madison. Oh, bad joke. I love putting Lady Gaga in a puzzle. Caleb Madison became the youngest person to publish a crossword puzzle in the New York Times at the age of 15. And what I'm about to tell you is going to make you feel even worse. He's now 18, a senior in high school, and has since published 19 more puzzles in the New York Times. There, there are people who get very mad when they see even proper names in a puzzle, and Will Shorts, I mean, has a philosophy, and I agree with it wholeheartedly, that the puzzles should reflect the times. And I love making puzzles uh, open to not only people who have studied obscure genuses of Celebes ox or have an intensive knowledge of all the popes and what they did, but I don't, I don't know, uh, people who live in the world, I mean, colloquial phrases, uh, pop culture references that people know, um, I think puzzles should be open to everybody. Now, when you heard Caleb mention Will Shorts, the New York Times crossword puzzle editor, he wasn't just name dropping. At the end of eighth grade, I started trying to do the New York Times puzzle, and I watched the documentary Wordplay about the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament, and uh, thought it was pretty cool. So I traveled to Brooklyn, where the American Cross- Crossword Puzzle Tournament is held, uh, pretty near my house. So I decided, why not? And I went up to Will Shorts, and I asked him if he needed an intern this summer. And uh, he said yes. He uh, had me out for an interview, and things went well, and I ended up interning for him that summer. And how old were you? I was... I think 14 when I asked for the internship. Uh, no, 15. And Will Shorts is actually who got Caleb the gig he has now, teaching seniors in New York City how to construct a crossword puzzle. The class is part of Sundays at JASA, a program that offers educational courses to New Yorkers over the age of 55. This means Caleb is teaching people three to four times his age. What is interesting for us is his associations are all with rock groups. For example, I think you had seen that we had had a third eye blind, which none of us over 50 knew what that was. But of course, it's apparently a band. That's one of Caleb's students, Carmel Cooperman. Cooperman, I usually say it's... It's Superman with a K. That's what I usually say so that you know that that's how it's spelt. Otherwise, it's C-double-O-P, so, you know, but anyway. And where are you from? I was born in South Africa, but I I left there when I was 19. I'm now 75. And Caleb may be teaching his students how to fit bands like Third Eye Blind into their crossword puzzles, but they're teaching him a thing or two as well. Take this moment where they were trying to find a phrase to fit in their puzzle that begins with the word seven. So, there are no real seven phrases. Seven pillars. Seven pillars? Seven pillars. Seven pillars. Seven pillars. The seven pillars of wisdom. Oh, you, you may know all that the rock bands, but you sure as hell don't know Sorry. your ancient history. Well, the thing is, okay. Seven, isn't it seven that was Cooperman. 
And in case you didn't catch it, it was, you may know all your rock bands, but you sure as hell don't know your ancient history. So how would you clue this? Yeah, would you clue in blank of wisdom? When I said seven pillars, and he didn't know that the association was the seven pillars of, will, of, you know, of wisdom immediately, that's exactly what's funny, because we've all learnt that we have to look for rock band associations, because they're going to be there. The young people are using those, uh, those expressions. And it's not just a generation gap, it's a multi-generational gap. Uh, but it's, it's what's made it so stimulating. He's an extraordinary t young teacher. I mean, he's been teaching here apparently since he was 15. And uh, some people were only doing Monday, puzzle, Monday puzzles. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, they're now attempting other ones. And, uh, Monday puzzles just in case you aren't a crossword connoisseur, are the easiest in the New York Times. And as the week goes on, the puzzles get more difficult. So your Saturday puzzle will be the hardest. So how is it that all the students are getting better so fast and doing puzzles more difficult than the Mondays? It's not just because they're learning rock bands. I asked you, like, what makes a person good at crosswords? And you said they tend to be science or math music people. Math music. And I guess my thought would be you have to be a word person, like a literary person. You read a lot. But is that actually not the uh, case? Or I, I wouldn't say so. Uh, I think it's, it's really uh, about patterns. I, uh, like I said, it shouldn't be about knowing obscure facts. So you shouldn't have to be like a super intellectual literary person. It's a really about uh, synthesizing patterns and, and kind of knowing, knowing, knowing the patterns of words more than knowing the content of them. Is there a way that you kind of can improve your craft in the way that, you know, someone who like plays soccer or whatever, like they do drills, like what, what yeah. do you do to um, stay sharp and get better? Well, uh, it's interesting. A lot, a lot of the people who construct crosswords have tend to have similar professions. Math teachers, musicians. Uh, and I think the reason why, it's because it's a lot about knowing patterns and being able to recognize patterns, like in music, uh, like in math, and apply them to a physical grid. So just like a musician will read notes and, and trans, tr translate them to the piano or the guitar or uh, you know the trumpet, whatever, these abstract notes become kind of a reality, just like a mathematician will take these symbols and these patterns and organize them in a way. Crosswords is a lot, of, a lot about that, a lot about recognizing patterns in the English language, uh, taking kind of joy in those patterns. That's what really themes exploit. And I think the class is taking joy in those oh, patterns. Okay. Exciting news yes. for those of you, was anyone in the, raise your hand if you were in this class last semester. Two Sundays from now, it's our puzzle. Hooray! The celebration you just heard was for good reason. The students that were in Caleb's class last semester just learned that one of the puzzles they created together was about to be published in the New York Times. So you should definitely go check it out. Although, I should admit, I haven't done the puzzle myself yet, so I can't guarantee it passes the breakfast test. The Sunday morning breakfast test. Uh, I'm not sure if Will Short's... Uh has sanctioned this, but it's kind of this term in the crossword world to uh, see if something's appropriate to put in a puzzle. Uh, the situation is you're sitting at breakfast on Sunday morning and you look over, you're doing the crossword with breakfast. Is it an answer you want to see while you're eating your cereal? Uh, I actually had an answer 
earwax in one of my puzzles that people kind of, there was stirred some controversy because people were like, oh, it's a little disgusting for a puzzle. I thought it was okay. Wait, this was a puzzle that was published in the New York Times? Yeah, a while ago. Uh, where, yeah. where, where does the backlash occur? Like, are, do people comment on the puzzles? Or? Yeah, there are actually three or four major crossword blogs uh, that are pretty pretty well known. Uh, Rex Parker does that New York Times crossword puzzle. Uh, the official New York Times blog is Wordplay. Uh, and uh, cross, Diary of a Crossword Fiend, which is Amy Reynaldo. And there are three people, I mean, I know them all. Uh, Deb Amlin, Rex Parker, is, his real name is Michael Sharp, and Amy Reynaldo. And they do a write-up of the puzzle each day. And uh, people comment on the blogs, and that's basically where all the discourse has started. And it's a great way to to give Will criticism, immediate criticism of the puzzles that he published, to give constructors the immediate criticism of the puzzles they publish, and also a lot of them were just really, really funny. So when people, what do people say about the earwax answer? Earwax. I, I remember a couple comments saying that it's not the, the, the kind of thing they wanted to see on the, uh, while they were eating their breakfast. Uh, I thought it was, you know, okay. Ear, earwax isn't as disgusting as, uh, if they could put car wax in a puzzle, they could put earwax in. Nice, Michelle. I like what you did there, bringing the whole third eye blind reference full circle. And what are you do? You are looking up earwax in the OED. Ah, and can you guess what year it was first used? Possibly 1398. Totally looked. Well, when I was visiting OUPUK, I had the honor of taking a private tour with OED archivist Martin Ma. Who, by the way, guys, sounds just like the host of Lifestyles with the Rich and Famous. No, he doesn't. Martin, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do here? Yes, uh, uh, as the main archivist for the press, myself and my two colleagues look after all the history of this organisation, which on site here in Oxford goes all the way back to the year 1668. We look after about 15 miles of shelving, and we're also the people responsible for picking up all the current records of the business as they cease to be used on your desk every day, so we're constantly adding to our collection. So you probably have a lot of very important and fragile documents that we're we going to see. We do indeed, we do <laughs> okay. indeed. Well, let's go. Okay, so we are here in the Press Museum at Great Clarendon Street, and this traces the whole involvement of Oxford University in the printing trade. It's a very long and it's a very complicated story. And so for today, for this podcast, we have just the basic outline of it. We could be here for hours talking about this. But really, Oxford University has been involved with the printing trade for about 530 years. The very first printer who comes to the city and works with the university is a friend of the very first printer in England. That very first printer in England was called William Caxton, and this man who turns up on our doorstep in the en at the end of the 15th century was called Theodoric Rood. Theodoric, that's a fantastic name. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what he looked like. He really comes to Oxford as a private businessman. He brings his own wooden printing press to the city. He interests the university in this brand new technology. Mm -hmm. The university begins to give him money to support him in his work. And of course, it begins to open its huge old libraries of handwritten material to the printing trade. So these unique handwritten copies begin to be given a wider circulation through European scholars. 
We don't know, though, who chose those books to be printed or the reasons for that. All of that is lost to history. So, for reasons we just don't know, the very first thing that the university prints with Rood's machine is an edition of the Creed. And it's a very small-scale beginning to what's now a worldwide organisation. With a basic wooden printing press, Rood could print one title every year in maybe 30 copies, if that. Oh, my goodness. So it's what most people listening to this podcast would think of as a cottage industry. It's very small indeed, and it seems to be very, very hand-to-mouth. There doesn't seem to be very much organisation at all. It's really the university just dipping a toe into the water of this new technology and seeing what it does. And uh, really, as you look at the history of Oxford's printing, you find that those early printers who follow route to the city try out many different things. Slowly but surely, uh, though the business begins to get organised, we get a whole series of royal charters, documents from the kings and the queens in England, in the days when the monarchy had real political power. Mm -hmm. And in the 16th and the 17th century, they really determine who can print books in England and who can't. So you have to go to them, you have to get formal permission for what you want to do. So we begin getting legal recognition from Queen Elizabeth I in the 1580s. And once we start, we don't stop. We get a whole string of these documents over the next 50 years. And we end up with a huge very beautiful document that's illuminated in red and gold ink from King Charles I. It's given to the university in 1636 and it's really the reason we have a worldwide university press today. That document says Oxford can print all manner of books, all kinds of books. So it's really a blank check in legal terms. We can do almost anything we want. So I can almost thank that document for having a job today. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's essentially it's laying out your contracts of employment. Exactly. And is this an image of it that we're looking at? Yes, right now? indeed. Uh, the original document is not kept at the press. It is in the university archive. It is very, very large. If you go to the Bodleian Library, where that archive is, you will see the original document. It is about the size of a small coffee table. It is very, very large indeed. So the, the tiny, tiny print that I'm looking at right now might be, I don't know, what we would call a size 12. It's something like so that. This, this picture you were looking at has been shrunk down. When you see the original document, it is about uh, two foot by 18 inches on a side. It is a very, very large legal document indeed. There's so much um, color left to it. It's, it's so On the front page, yes, the rest of it is just in black and white handwriting. But before we can do very much with this, of course, there is a great civil war in England in the early 17th century, and it is every bit as destructive and disruptive as the American Civil War in the 19th century. And we have to wait until the world has calmed down again before one man takes that charter that we got from Charles I and really begins to build the beginnings of the press we have today. And his name was John Fell. He was the Dean of Christchurch College, and he's really the first secretary of the delegates, the first head of this group of Oxford academics who act as the trustees for the university's printing. 
And Fell is really the man who begins to organise Oxford's printing work in a proper way for the first time. There's a picture of him. He seems very, very proud to be doing that. <laughs> very much so. He's a, he's a, a, a somewhat cold and puritanical man. Uh, I don't think he was an easy man to, to like. He was very, very short on we, what we would call personal skills. But he was uh, exactly what was needed to uh, really take Oxford's printing by the scruff of its neck and organise it. And it's John Fell who begins to print Bibles and prayer books in English at right. Oxford and to organise our academic list for the first time and also to print the calendars that the university press publishes to these day, to this day rather, uh, publish the calendars that we publish, well, I'll say that again. He prints the calendars that we publish to this day, the Oxford Almanacs. And that's a continuous series now since the 1670s. And Fell is also the person who sets up the first central print shop for the university to use, a very beautiful building in the middle of Oxford called the Sheldonian Theatre. What a name. <laughs> Indeed. And if you go onto the internet, you simply Google for that term, you'll be able to see this wonderful building which has a, a marvellous ring of sculpted heads around it. It's one of the earliest buildings designed by Christopher Wren, who designed St Paul's Cathedral in okay. London. And the print shop really worked in the basement of that building. So it's um, a rather strange Oxford undertaking. It's uh, an underground business, literally. But it's also very successful. It starts growing and growing from the time that Fell sets it up in the 1660s. It meets with a lot of legal opposition from the London print trade, which Fell tries to fight off. But the London printers come to have a very large part in Oxford's work. And after Fell's death, and when the Sheldonian theatre gets too small for us, those London printers have a part to play in our trade. They occupy half of the new building we go to after the Sheldonian theatre. Next door to it, the university builds what is called the Clarendon building to house the press. And this is, and this is where we get the expression the Clarendon press from, really. I've always it's wondered. <laughs> <laughs> and the name of the building comes from a very famous 18th century book. It's uh, a history of the English Civil War written by the university chancellor at that time who was called Clarendon. And the book was a great bestseller in 18th century terms and Clarendon gives the money from it to the university, it helps pay for the building and it gives it its name. And we're really there for a hundred years, it's our home in the 18th century. And there's this wonderful print of the uh, Edward, what does it say, Edward Earl Edward of it's his name. Okay, Earl of and Clarendon. And his title was the Earl of Clarendon. Okay, and was this woodblock printing that all this was done on at this uh, time? At or? this time, it would have been engraved copper plates. Oh, my goodness. This was the standard way of producing an image in a printed book. So it's very, very fine work. You get wonderful shades of light and dark and grey worked into this. You can get wonderful um, tonal variations with this process. So it's very delicate work. And yet today, you can barely even get copper installed exactly. in your house for painting. <laughs> 
So it's a very complicated time in our history in the 18th century, but after a lot of ups and downs in the business, right. we get too big for the Clarendon building. We have to go somewhere else. Well, it was a cute building. It was a cute <laughs> building. It also got too small too quickly. <laughs> it has wonderful pillars in the front. <laughs> but uh, we have to look for a new home, and okay. so we start building on the site where the press now stands in northwest Oxford. And today, if you come to visit the press here, this is Great Clarendon Street and uh, Walson Street. We stand on that corner. Mm -hmm. So when we moved to this site in 1830, we were surrounded by open countryside. You would have found cattle here, you'd have found flocks of sheep, you'd have found apple orchards, and you'd have found green fields. And right in the middle of it, the university built this incredible building, which looks like a big ivory pavilion. Uh, it's amazing that it actually stands as straight as it did, because the main architect on it was a man called Robertson, uh, who was a complete and utter drunkard. He liked going around the site in a wheelbarrow, clutching a bottle of sherry. That's quite classy. Um, <laughs> but amazingly, the whole place stands straight to this day. And although it looks like a piece of Roman architecture, it was designed as a printing factory. And by the 20th century, about 900 people were working here, printing academic books, printing Bibles and prayer books, and of course, printing the Oxford English Dictionary, which arrives at Oxford in 1879. It's brought to us by a, a Scottish schoolteacher called James Murray. Uh, he's not simply a school teacher, he's as much a genius as Benjamin Franklin. He can speak about 40 different languages. He could also have made a living as an astronomer, a botanist, uh, a shoe repairer. Um, he even invented his own diving suit at one point and, and tried that out. He almost drowned in the process. But he's a man of many talents. He gets to know a group of academics in London who are putting this big dictionary together to mark Queen Victoria's reign. He becomes fascinated by it. He becomes its notional editor. Notional, because there isn't any book at this point. There's just a lot of random notes. And he tries to interest every publisher in the British Isles in it to make it a reality. It's only Oxford that thinks we have the resources for it. And uh, we think, from Murray's estimates, that it's going to take 10 years to finish and cost <laughs> the then staggering sum of £9,000. Uh, if we allow for inflation, we're already talking about millions of pounds right. before a single word's been printed. Um, in fact, without meaning to, Murray almost destroys Oxford University Press. Um, the project just keeps growing and growing and growing. It doesn't take 10 years to finish the dictionary. It takes almost 50 years to finish it. It's not finished until 1928. And as for the cost, it goes through the roof from £9,000 to almost £390,000. Today, again, we'd be talking into the billions of pounds sterling for a single piece of work. For a dictionary. <laughs> and there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of people working on this thing around the world, sending Murray uh, quotations from tens of thousands of texts to show him something that had never been done before, to show him the written history of the use of every word in the language, from its very earliest usage right up to date. 
And so this huge project begins to take shape here in Oxford. And it's really because of the costs and the pressures of this project that Oxford University Press changes from being a very small business tucked away in this university town on the Thames into being a worldwide concern. To pay for it, to pay for the dictionary, we have to come down out of the ivory tower, we really have to get involved in the marketplace. And it's at this point in the late 19th century that the whole business begins to expand into a popular worldwide concern. So it's at this time we begin to think about lines of publishing like children's books mm -hmm. and the world's classics and uh -huh. in the 1920s music. We also start to think about the international market. We begin to produce school books for sale around the world. And all of this leads us outside Oxford and indeed outside England. We start to open our offices all over the globe. We begin with New York in 1896 yes. and then Canada, Australia, South Africa and so on until today when we employ about 4,500 people worldwide. And uh, we are, uh, simply in terms of the number of titles we put out, now the world's largest university press. Right. We produce about 6,000 new titles globally each year. But in all of this growth, we now have nobody working for Oxford directly who does printing or binding. With computerization that came into our trade in the 1980s, we closed down the huge print shop and bindery here in Oxford, which was really the heart of the physical book production process. Mm -hmm. And today we now contract all of that physical production out around the world. There are hundreds and hundreds of companies who work for us doing our physical production in various countries. Uh, but of course we're not simply now restricted to hard copy print production. Uh, as I'm sure every listener to this will realise, increasingly Oxford has a significant presence on the internet. And it's there of course that the Oxford English Dictionary is now taking shape along with a lot of other texts as well. Uh, as it was in the days of hard copy print though, the dictionary in the digital age is a very big project. We are currently reviewing and, where need be, revising every single entry that exists in the Oxford English Dictionary. That is about half a million different bits of work before we go any further. But of course, English is not like Latin. It's a living language. It's right. growing all the time. And believe it or not, every month we get about a hundred new words coming into written English from around the world. So the dictionary is hoovering those up as it goes along and adding them to the revised old text. And we think now by about 2030 we will have revised everything. After that we will just be adding new words to that core text. But this is only a guess. Just as it was in James Murray's day, this is a, a project on a scale that has never been seen in the world before. It may take much longer. My goodness. Indeed. So everyone can go onto the internet, they can follow the growth of the dictionary there, they can also see the growing uh, body of internet resources that Oxford has. And I'm sure we will all see that profile growing and growing in the coming years. We have a, a, an increasing presence on the internet. But despite that, the heart of the business, the main thing we do, is still the book and the printed word as it has been since the year 1478. 
And until 2030, we can take the old edition of the OED and build a fort out of it. Absolutely. Your, your children will never have a dull rainy afternoon. Buy the 20 volumes. There you are. It's uh, like Lego in book form. Go to it. Well, Martin, thank you very much. This was lovely. And uh, I like the uh, goatee you're growing, which oh, it seems much. to be a little bit um, almost an homage to uh, James Murray here. It's more to do with the cold Oxford winter. I think. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> but thank you very much indeed. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Oxford Comment. I want to take just a moment and plug a few Twitter accounts. We, of course, have our main feed, which is at OUP Academic. But we also have OED Online and Oxford Words, which is run by the Oxford Dictionaries Online team. And as always, be sure to check out blog.oup.com, where you can find a slideshow of Caleb's crossword class. And I believe that's all we got for you today so hope you enjoyed the show and blah 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 why am i talking <laughs>